Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Remember those old TV shows where characters shrank down and journeyed into the human body to battle diseases? Back then, this may have seemed like pure science fiction, but today's guest is using modern technology to make this dream a reality. Tori Smith is the CEO and co-founder of Endiotics. His mission is to develop PillBot, a remote-controlled pill-sized robot that can enter the human body for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. I am so looking forward to hearing this conversation. My name is Matt Zhao, and as always, here's your host, Dr. Curdy. All right, we've got Tori Smith here. Uh, welcome, Tori. How are we doing? Fantastic. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, pretty excited about making little tiny robots in the human body and just trying to do that in such a way where we actually create something that can go help people. So <laughs> that's kind of what we're focused on. Awesome. Awesome. That's, uh, that's really, really interesting. You know, you're jumping right through this. Let's um, back up a little bit. So, <laughs> you know, I, I always record an introduction uh, with every guest that I have on a podcast, but I always also like to hear what they say about themselves. So tell us a little bit about you, Tori. Yeah, sure. So a short little bio for me is uh, I originally studied uh, studied aerospace engineering, and that just represents me pursuing my childhood dreams of science fiction and, and really cool stuff. Um, as a kid, I was uh, raised in a little dirt floor cabin, and then eventually, you know, they, they took me out of the mountains and I got to go into normal society. But, you know, my, when I was a kid, I had books and sci-fi, and I've just been trying to... Um, create that ever since. Um, Endiotics to me basically just represents a an attempt to bring a little bit of the world of hardcore deep tech into medical device. And we think uh, if we can make a robot swim around in your stomach and, and maybe turn a hospital visit into a Zoom call, that maybe, you know, we can uh, use that as a platform to do other things. That's amazing. So. Tell us the story um, of Indiatex. How how did it start? You know, from the the birth of the idea until where it is right now. Right. So I I think I I had always imagined a future where nano robots travel by the millions throughout your bloodstream and just like attack in swarm style any any cancer that would dare threaten your life. Right. That's that's kind of the that is the dream from science fiction. And honestly, I, I think we're probably moving in that direction, both with you know, people trying to build tiny robots like we are, but also on the biotech side. You know, for example, I, you know, I lost my aunt Katie to a glioblastoma brain tumor. I think it was 2007. And, you know, a few years ago, I, I saw a case where a patient was cured of that same terrible illness using a targeted immune therapy. And so if you, if you look at what we're doing with the bio side of things, and you look at where we're trying to go with the mechanical side of things, I think at the molecular level, we finally get to meet in the middle. Um, so in the meantime, I just feel like we're trying to be the, the bus driver of the magic school bus, where we, we just initially think, thank goodness for the human stomach, because it provides us this, it provides us this relatively large place where we can place a rather humble little robot pill and drink some water and maybe have a look around. That's amazing. I mean, I love the analogy of immunotherapy or maybe um, directed antibodies as 
little um, immune robots because, you know, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And so it's great. I mean, you guys you guys built a pretty nice little submarine that <laughs> can swim around in a stomach. Um, tell us about your first MVP. First of all, let's let's talk about you know the first iteration of the idea when when you thought of it or you one of your co-founders thought about it what, what was your first drawing or depiction of pillbot like and then what was your first mvp like yeah honestly so you know minimum viable product that's that's what we're still trying to make uh, but i will say that our latest prototypes look a lot more like a pr product than than in the past so we initially just wanted to show stakeholders that we could build anything. And so we went on Amazon and found Raspberry Pi electronic hardware. Uh, and with a, a few hundred bucks, we purchased some electronic hardware and started spinning propellers. Um, we borrowed some tips and tricks from the world of multi-copter drones. Uh, our, our technology very much looked like a quadcopter for a few years. And then we just set about trying to make it physically smaller. Um, we went from about the size of a football, American football, to a uh, maybe like a Red Bull can. Um, Red Bull size didn't actually, we didn't raise any money at that scale. Um, we got down to thumb size and uh, found a new cohort of investors willing to risk their life savings on us. Um, basically shot a music video where this thumb size prototype was swimming around in a fish tank. And that, that got a lot of excitement. Um, our, our first excitement was when I swam around in the, the swimming pool uh, with the, the football size prototype. <laughs> uh, but, but using that money that allowed us to, to get down to close to fingertip size, um, we took the quadcopter design all the way down to something that we felt at the time was at least comparable uh, to a passive pill camera. We were still a little bit fatter. We were still longer, but but it was the kind of thing that you know we ended up swallowing dozens of and, and testing around in our stomachs. The problem was that at that time, uh, buoyancy was actually a real challenge for us. We were a very dense robot. We had to put flotation packages on to to float more naturally and allow our limited thruster power to actually let us move in three dimensions. And that, that was a little bit of a challenge for us for a while, but we just kept pushing on it. And initially we just took a few motors out. We went from four motors to two motors and made the thing longer. And, you know, I was able to get 375 megabytes of data off of this rather, rather unsophisticated version of our robot where we, we didn't even really have proper control. We, we could go left, right, forward and backward, but we're trying to be three-dimensional here, and, and so that was a difficult time. Uh, we realized that we could get a lot of what we were doing with four motors done with three motors. We went to what we call a tri-motor configuration and finally had something that could move in X, Y, and Z and float naturally and maybe be swallowed. The last year, though, was basically just a hardcore sprint getting it smaller and smaller and smaller and our current uh our current design now um is is actually um skinnier than some pill cameras um and substantially shorter than than most pill cameras and so 
At this point, we have a neutrally buoyant device that can move in X, Y, and Z. Uh, it's about the size of a pill camera and, you know, kind of kind of just hopefully serves as the platform from which we can create a proper minimum viable product. I'll be honest with you uh, that right now we are on any given day trying to overcome challenges of the quality of our radio connection, the reliability of our code when it comes to pairing properly and you know giving you control in a quick, satisfying manner. And then finally, just the delivered video quality. You know, I have a lot of videos up on YouTube that show video, but not the kind of video that makes a fun video game. Nice, nice. I mean, I, I love this story. Uh, starting out from a football size uh, prototype and going all the way down to what you have right now, which is um, amazing. And it sounds like you guys have um, resolved most of the mechanical problems and now it's uh, kind of telecommunication. Um, if if that, um, if I'm not putting my foot in my mouth right now. <laughs> that, that's actually very, very accurate. When, when I'm describing endiotics to a stakeholder or one of our existing investors or you know, if I'm meeting new groups of investors that might be able to be a part of our new chapter, what I like to tell them is that we feel that we have de-risked the mechanical hardware component um, fairly well. We're, we're very proud of our ability to make a little robot pill that you can swim around and you know drive in your stomach. And that most of our development now from here on out is going to be on the software side. You know, we certainly have some electronic hardware optimization. We have uh, drawing board plans of, of robots that will be smaller than any pill camera. Um, but really from here on out, we're just trying to get the video signal to that next level of quality so that we can hopefully make the world's first virtual endoscope, even if it's a, an entry level endoscope. Um, if we can be the first truly virtual endoscope where you can have that look around inside a patient uh, in the comfort of their own home over a Zoom call, we hope that is sufficient um, to get the community uh, excited and, and, and maybe help collaborate with us to see what comes next. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm already excited. <laughs> But I'm, I'm interested in maybe a little story or a little blurb about how you got your first investor to be excited. So what, what was the story going with that football shaped device, which, you know, you, you mentioned the story you guys started out buying the components on Amazon. So I'm, I'm guessing that part was was self-funded. Um, so it, it really began with me finally realizing uh, at the age of, I think, 37, that if I was going to pursue my dreams, um, I, I needed to make some kind of a change. I, I had become, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now in my 17th year as a medical device designer, um, maybe our fourth year as a, as a co-founder of Endiotics. Um, but I spent a good five years, um, you know, I think it was like 2014 through 18, sketching the endiotics logo, you know, while I would work on other medical devices at my job, um, drawing robot robots in the margins of my notebook. You know, I spent about five years just dreaming and thinking that somehow I had to invent the whole tech stack myself. And so 
although I'm a decent mechanical designer, I didn't know very much about code and electronics. And so I was buying Arduino hardware and MicroSize hardware and trying to learn how to code, which is still a bit of a handicap for me, uh, which I'm you know, not proud to admit it, but I can certainly admit it and ask for help. Five years in, I realized I hadn't actually made any tangible progress. And that's when I saw an ad for the Founder Institute, which is a great example of an accelerator program. Uh, just like Singularity University or Y Combinator or Techstars, those are all amazing places. Um, Founder Institute had an ad that said, come practice picture idea for free. And I, I was nervous. I, I, was, I was excited. I, I was very naive. But I went over there and got slaughtered. And they said, if you're serious, we you know, have a program you can apply to. And basically, we'll teach you how to communicate. We'll teach you how to become a CEO, a fundraiser. Uh, we'll teach you how to grow beyond you know, your day job. And so I went through Founder Institute, and that was a life-changing uh, step for me. Um, I, I came out of that program four months later um, with, a, with a funded company with patents filed. You know, we were incorporated. And our technology was in its infancy, like, you know, the size of that American football. But yes, like you said, we, we used the cash we had on hand, a couple hundred bucks of electronics, several thousand dollars that our chairman uh, put on his credit card to buy us our first decent resin 3D printer from Formlabs, uh, which we still use, that Form 2. And basically, we took what we had on hand and started building robots. And that was how we were able to get our first group of investors, many of whom were from the Burning Man arts community. And uh, our, our exploits out at Burning Man in the desert building giant Tesla coils uh, uh, proved to give us a little bit of a cohort of people that believed in us. And, you know, that's where the friends and family money came from. And from there, we started uh, uh, meeting angel investors and venture capitalists. And the rest is kind of history. That's that's amazing. I mean, I, I love so many things about the story. <laughs> uh, going through the Founder Institute, that's that's really cool because um, a lot of people don't think about that, uh, you know, going through one of these institutes. Although I've heard this over and over and over, getting the right team is one of the most important things that you can do. Um, and like you said, you know, you could be a fantastic engineer, mechanical engineer, for example, but you wouldn't know much about electrical engineering or um, coding or any of that stuff, but all of it is needed for a product, um, you know, similar to what you're describing. And so going through one of these institutions can be essential. I think that that, that is a great pathway. Um, but <laughs> you know, looking for investment capital at Burning Man, that's, that's, a, I've, I've not heard this one before. <laughs> it, it was, it was interesting. I, I, I do like to credit the, the Burning Man community for helping me as an engineer uh, in my you know late 20s, maybe early 30s, uh, I think it was early 30s, start to see a slightly larger version of myself. Um, many of us suffer from imposter syndrome and many of us are ashamed that we didn't go to a certain school or, or maybe uh, didn't take a certain... Um, risk at a certain time in our life. And 
I feel like if you allow that to just build and build and you don't answer it, eventually you can become relatively unhappy and you can feel trapped in your life. And I would offer some credit to Burning Man for helping me to understand that I might have the potential to be more than a arrogant cubicle jockey <laughs> designing stuff <laughs> in SolidWorks. And so initially we, we started building zip lines and towers because we were engineers out there. Um, my friend Dan said he wanted to build a Tesla coil, which is a device that shoots lightning bolts. And uh, that grew into a 10 meter or about 32 foot high Tesla coil that you know was a approaching world record with some of its stats. And once we had spent a few years out at Burning Man becoming relatively known out there, we began to realize that there was a new opportunity, which was what if we could take some of this passion and some of this creativity and more than anything, what if we could take this license to really express ourselves and kind of be who we wanted to be back to Silicon Valley? And that's where I, I started to tell the team that I had always had this dream of robots and the human body and that I, I thought we might actually be able to pull it off if we put all of our minds together. I love it. I love it. Finding it. That kind of inspiration is, uh, is amazing. Um, you know, I, I have I have so many questions, but <laughs> let, let's focus on some practical stuff. So going through the Founder Institute, um, did you have to quit your day job? Actually, the best thing you can do when you go through Founder Institute or any accelerator um, is to try to get fired about halfway through. Because <laughs> if you quit your day job, you don't get any severance. But when they fired me from... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my previous day job, and, and these uh, these good people remained my friends. <laughs> uh, but when I managed to get fired, uh, they offered me a month of severance, and I thought that was very generous. Um, but because of my time at the Founder Institute, I was beginning to act more boldly, and I was beginning to think of myself as a as as maybe someone who could become a real leader, and I realized wait a minute, maybe maybe this is negotiable. And so I went to uh, the powers that be and I said, would you be willing to quadruple that severance? It would certainly help me with the transition. Um, and they, they, they were a little taken aback and ultimately they said, well, no, but we'll double it. And it, it helped me realize that, you know, there is elasticity in the universe. I, I'm not one to try to hustle for the sake of swindling someone or or conning someone or stealing that that is never who i want to be but i do have this dream that we could save millions of lives with really fun cool technology that is actually really inexpensive and for the sake of what i feel is a beautiful dream hustling for that sake actually doesn't put a bad feeling in my mouth i feel proud to hustle for endiotics and so that was a that was a big lesson for me. So I went in with a day job and I came out with a funded company. That's amazing. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about the decision. Why why GI? Why go down the route of ingestibles? You know, everybody talks about wearables. I just had a conversation um, with a group of founders, and uh, you know, wearables are very hot right now. How come did you go? the route of ingestibles and why particularly well, the GI tract? 
to, to use a somewhat inappropriate word, and I apologize for this, sometimes it makes <laughs> me think uh, that in the world of the Fitbit, maybe we should uh, call it the shitbit or something like that. <laughs> and and I, I do apologize for the, the use of that word. Uh, but uh, my, my personal journey, uh, beginning with aerospace engineering and going into medical devices, um, means that I have only ever worked on what you might consider hard tech projects in regulated markets that, uh, that, that put human lives in trust. And so I think I am, am benefiting from that being my default because when I look at the world of wearables, there are obviously huge opportunities. I, I, you know, I love my electronic watch that helps me and we may even use that watch to control the robot, right? But if we are willing to go where it is difficult or where it is perceived to be difficult, which are two very different things, the opportunities get much more exciting. And so for me, I, I just feel, can we actually turn a hospital visit where they would jam a tube into your body, sedate you, maybe force you to go through a gatekeeping process because those are not trivial things to do, right? Can we take this multi-month patient odyssey for, for many patients, can we transform that into a quick Zoom call from home? Then maybe it's useful to go into a regulated hardware environment where you're actually putting this stuff inside the human body. I would say that uh, this is not the first class two medical device that I've worked on. Um, all of my medical devices um, dating back to say 2006, seven have been vascular closure, you know, closing the holes left in arteries after you get catheter access. Um, atherectomy, making catheters that would remove plaque from arteries, um, endometrial ablation, you know, steaming the inside of the uterus to try to avoid a hysterectomy, therapeutic hypothermia is like poking a hole in your belly to squirt ice water onto the outside of your guts to very quickly drop your core temperature into deep hypothermia, um, and, and some others, you know, they were all devices you might consider invasive to some extent. And so I just feel like you know, hey, cancer's on the inside. Let's go kill it where it lives. Nice. I like it. You know, I'm, I'm a GI doc, so I like GI. I'm glad you you picked this field. <laughs> um, when, I, I always say, I'll say this again. I think, you know, for the GI track, there there are no surface wearables. And I, I, I mean, maybe there is. A, allometry is, a, is an interesting one. Uh, but I do think that ingestibles are the wearables of the GI track. So it's a... It's a good place to be. We, we feel that ingestibles are, I, I think that's a very accurate way to say it. It's like ingestibles are kind of the next iteration of what is a wearable. Um, because if you think about it, the GI tract is in certain senses um, more of an external surface than other parts of the body, right? The inside of the GI tract is capable of handling objects and uh, you know, certain types of uh, pathogens in a, in a much more robust way. You know, I, I think the GI tract might very well be an appropriate place to begin this journey of tiny robots in the body. And, and I would simply say, thank goodness for the human stomach, because if, if we can visualize the human stomach and turn a certain number of EGDs into a, you know, a zoom call, I, I think we're starting where, you know, we, I think we actually can affect people in a very positive way. But it, it gives us this early opportunity to try this technology um, before we would do anything crazy like brain surgery. 
It's amazing. It's uh, this uh, your own personal playground, isn't it? Um, it? It's it's the perfect playground. It's this part of the gut that is just so big and doesn't move as or doesn't push things as uh, I, as strongly as I, the rest of the bowel. It's, it's amazing. I, I will say that when we have a device ready to do a demo and we're going to demo it to maybe a venture capitalist or, you know, we've We've done a live swallow demo in Las Vegas, which was pretty cool up on stage. <laughs> um, you skip your meal. You know, if you try to maybe schedule it for midday, um, you would wake up, you know, try to avoid breakfast. That's very important. Uh, try to avoid coffee. That's very difficult for me. Um, I usually drink a few glasses of warm water during the morning to hopefully kind of easily rinse out some of the goo, right? And then around midday, that's when we would consider it go time. And that's where I would have several pints of water on hand and, and a robot ready to go. And that's, that's kind of all we've needed so far to create a, a temporary aqueous environment that you can swim around in and just kind of have a look around. That's awesome. So since we're talking about the details of um, how it's been done so far, I've seen it work. I've seen some of the videos that you're talking about. Um, and it's basically this little submarine, right? And it, yes. it works while it's underwater, but it doesn't work above the surface of the water, right? It, it cannot, it's, it's not yet a drone that can fly. <laughs> yeah. And believe it or not, I mean, if you Google tiny flying drone, I, I think, I think you'd be impressed with, with what's been done, right? Our, our specific goal is to temporarily and artificially inflate the stomach with a body of water just by drinking a few glasses of water. Um, we are just a, a multi-pump jet swimming robot. Honestly, it looks kind of like what you might think a fish tank toy might look like. It's a little capsule with a camera and some LEDs and some holes poked in it with pump jets that can squirt water in several different directions. Um, I think there's a very good question of, you know, if we swim in the water, what do you do above the water? And my hope would be that if a patient was, um, say, sitting up on this Zoom call and we're looking around the stomach and maybe looking at the bottom of the stomach, if we were curious what was on top, honestly, we might see if we could just get the patient to you know, rotate 90 degrees, maybe lie on their back for a few minutes and maybe gain this aqueous viewpoint that might have been inter interfered with by the air-water interface. Um, so far, with the robots that I've swallowed, it, it just kind of looks like a giant water-inflated stomach. I, I, I haven't yet had the air-water interface problem, but that's probably related to our somewhat limited control scheme at any given moment in time. What, one thing that uh, we, we have had to do with the tech stack is constantly make a series of, of compromises and, and hard choices. My my heart right now is with a four motor version that has the ability to really point in any direction. Right now with three motors, we're kind of more horizontally oriented and, and just moving up, down, left, right, forward, backward. Uh, I'd have to have you lie down on your back to get a view at the top or at the bottom of your stomach. But um, honestly, the compromises we make have allowed us to, to get to where we're actually swallowing robots and testing them. So I, I see a bright future for this basic kind of technology. That's awesome. So far, um, and, and I understand this is just the beginning, like you said, this is 
still the quest towards an MVP, but so far this is limited to the stomach. Um, what else are you guys are working on? What, sure. what, what well, should we expect in the, in the near future? I think, I think in the near future, um, we need to establish visualization of the human stomach as a benchmark. And it's very important that we give credit to our amazing uh, collaborators. I, I, I feel that they're collaborators. Um, the Onx Robotica team coming out of China with a product called Navicam, um, they have created a magnetically actuated uh, pill camera that is FDA released in the human stomach for visualization of the human stomach. And so um, it's, it's just amazing technology. Let's unpack that. What, what does that mean? Basically, they use magnetic fields to induce motion in what would normally be a passive pill camera platform. And so you would just lie on a, a bed and they roll this actually surprisingly small magnetic machine over to you um, that can create magnetic fields in various directions. And they basically have a moving eyeball in the stomach. Um, if we have any differentiation, I think it's that our basic goal is to do this without the capital equipment so that we can unlock the telemedicine capability of just a Zoom call from home, right? Um, but, but with that being said, the moving eyeball in the stomach, I think very much is the beachhead market for us. But immediately thereafter, we get interested in the colonoscopy. So for example, if we're gonna do a colonoscopy, we would need to clean all the junk out. And this is where a procedure like a, a colonic, where they just use a, a bunch of water to sort of rinse out all the junk and sort of create this aqueous environment. That, that machine already exists and that procedure is pretty well understood. We might be able to offer a prep-free walk-in colonoscopy that wouldn't require any sedation. Basically, you would just walk in off the street um, if you're willing to let this machine clean you out. Um, I think in that kind of an environment, our first product, PillBot, could probably get a second market, which is perhaps twice the size of the stomach market. Um, but really from there, you know, let's ask some hard questions. The reason that I would go for a direct um, entry into the colonoscopy rather than swallow it and wait is that the small intestine is a difficult environment for us to just swim through. Swimming through a series of kinked, slippery tubes um, when all you can do is squirt a little bit of water for your propulsion, in our case. Um, I don't think with our current tech stack, we're going to easily navigate the small bowel. Maybe we can pop into the duodenum and have a look around, which would be very cool. Um, so I think it's move around in the stomach first, then separately, maybe we could do that prep-free colonoscopy with the colonic machine. But really where things get interesting is if we, let's get weird for one second, if we haven't been weird already. Imagine a gross little thing like a bot fly larva. You know, this is the kind of thing that a fly would, would place on an animal and the little teeny larva um, exists under the skin and it eats a little cavity and it grows into, you know, uh, what will ultimately become another bot fly. Now imagine you could hack into that. Imagine you could tell a bot fly larva where to go, where to eat. There was a case where a bot fly larva tragically made it into someone's brain and actually ate a cavity in their brain. And it's this terrible 
there's a terrible autopsy picture of, of what resulted. But imagine we had the ability to make robots on that scale. So in this case, maybe the size of a grain of rice. These little robots might be able to articulate. They might have little arms and legs. Uh, they might be able to snip at the front and maybe cauterize at the back. They might be wirelessly powered or potentially nuclear powered. And if we could make a little creepy crawly surgical robot about the size of a grain of rice, you could potentially start to do brain surgeries. You could potentially have a fleet of them park themselves at the periphery of uh, a tumor somewhere in the body and methodically begin to go to work on it. And that could be through direct surgical cut. That could be injection of radio enhancers to localize and intensify the power of a uh, uh, the destructive power of radiation while minimizing it in other areas. Um, we, we, we start to become very excited when we ask the basic question, is it possible to make a robotic platform that can move under its own power inside the human body? That is the question that PillBot is asking, and we are hoping that it begins a grand adventure. Nice. I, I like that. That's a... <laughs> That's a great speech. I hope we can get to that at some point in the future. <laughs> it sounds it sounds too too sci-fi though at this time. <laughs> you know the, the the weird thing is I don't know if it's mechanical advancement that takes us there or biological advancement or some weird mixture. Uh, we we have now seen videos of teams that are using electronic implants to manipulate the motion of insects. Um, and this is very much like the movie Fifth Element, where there's yeah. this uh, this electronically enhanced cockroach or something like that that's uh, spying on on the president. Um, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, uh, perishes under under his shoe. Um, I, I feel like one way or another, this kind of technology is just kind of inevitable, right? Like, um, if, if you can if you can hack into a cockroach and make it go left, right, forward, backward, honestly, how far are you from having a bot fly do that? Um, on the biological side with targeted immune therapies and, and others, and I, I need to be very honest that my, my deep biotech knowledge base is pretty small. Um, um, but basically, I, I see many avenues in which we can advance the, the standard of care. I will only speak from the perspective of a mechanical knucklehead aerospace engineer, which is there's a crew in Europe called NDB, or a, I think it's a nano diamond battery, where they are taking flakes of carbon from nuclear reactor control rods that are end of use. This is extremely hot, so to speak. And these little flakes of carbon are then at a microscopic level placed over what is essentially a fancy solar cell that is able to receive that radiation and produce electrical power. They, they encapsulate this very small thing about the size of the head of a pin um, in a crystal matrix and yield a surface mountable nuclear battery. And I was very honored to get on a call with some of their team and basically say, I think this is how the microsurgeon could be powered, right? That as, as you make these things quite small, the the actual radiation hit that you're putting gets smaller and smaller as well. Like it, 
how much energy is really necessary to, to snip a few cubic millimeters of tissue, right? We're just trying to make a tiny intelligent scalpel that can travel to anywhere in the body and, you know, maybe be more than just a scalpel. I, I sort of see this technology as, as ultimately deploying an arsenal of technologies that, that could be used for various purposes. Amazing. <laughs> that is that is brilliant. I love how you're also looking into other people's work and how it fits in. Um, I think that's that's brilliant. All right. So, you know, we talked about pretty much everything that I want to talk about, except for one thing. Uh, and I always ask this for everyone that comes on the show. And it's basically what's the most challenging obstacle that you've had to deal with so far? Sure. Um, honestly, the... The most challenging obstacle for me uh, was was a cage that I built myself and lived in for a number of years. Um, I allowed myself to, I, you know, be to to feel uh, slighted by uh, maybe my my upbringing at times. You know, I would feel like, oh man, I, I I wish my my parents had more resources for me as a kid. And then, of course, decades later, I realized that's where all the grit came from that has been so valuable. Um, on the startup journey. Um, I, I spent years thinking I had to know everything or I wouldn't be taken seriously as a founder. And so there was this period of five years after uh, the PillCam company, given imaging, sells to Covidian, then Medtronic, uh, that deal approached nearly a billion dollars in value. And, you know, that really, that got my attention in the, in the world of medical device because, you know, the, the number of patients that could potentially affect or the the concept of electronics in the body was very fascinating. Um, th the bottom line is I, my attention was raised, but I felt inadequate and I felt like, you know, I, I had to be some kind of super human, some, some true genius in order to work on stuff like this. And slowly over time, I've just started to realize that those barriers were barriers that I myself erected. And I, I feel that many people live inside some form of a similar cage. Um, honestly, uh, we get our butts kicked every day working on this technology, right? Our battery life right now is unimpressive. The thrust we get out of our thrusters is on a good day, slightly more than, than our deficit in buoyancy, meaning, you know, sometimes the robots barely even move in the fish tank. And then sometimes you get a beautiful 3D flight and you feel like you're, you're onto it. Um, the challenges are never going to stop coming. The question is, are you as the prospective founder willing to simply take the first step, lean into the first challenge, and then just be there for the long haul? Um, I, I, I'm glad that I can contribute to the technical stack on the mechanical side. I'm very proud to begin to do a little bit of the layout for our flexible electronics. I mean, it's so cool to to cross over into the electrical engineering world. But at this point, the skill sets that have found us from all over the world to make this happen get very humbling very fast. Um, so the bottom line is you don't have to be the, the world's greatest genius or foremost expert on a subject to get your friends together and found a company that might actually be able to impact people all around the world. So yeah, it's hard to fundraise for a company like this, but if you take the money you have on hand, a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks, create something real, 
shop it around to investors, you're going to get a lot of rejections, but in several thousand rejections, we've found some very compelling yeses over the years. I like it. I think you brought a really good point, which is um, persistence. I always talk about this as uh, one of the biggest differences between you know successful people and people who are not so successful is persistence. Most people who are very successful have failed so many times, but they just you don't have the grit that you were talking about to keep going. Um, that's, and that's that is very essential. When, when, you, when you look in the news and you see uh, someone reveling in a successful moment, you know, like ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, what, a, what an incredible achievement that would be. What a moment. You know, I, I would be lying to you if I tell you that I don't have similar dreams, right? But when we see those moments in the news, you realize that that is one brief moment in probably a, a decade-long struggle or more. Um, where the average day of a founding team is one of simply being tolerant to the various failures that they encountered that day. <laughs> like today, I, I got an email from this, this very promising venture capital fund. Um, their portfolio includes space technology and robots and advanced healthcare stuff, crazy biotech stuff, and the, the timing and the size of their check and the, the, you know, the, the state of our company it's one of those heaven sent perfect matches. And we, we had great chemistry between us and the partners. We went into due diligence uh, with their scientists. I hand built a pillbot prototype and delivered it to one of their houses so they would have you know, a prototype in their hands so we could talk about it. Um, we even custom machined a beautiful brass keychain capsule so they can keep that on their keychain forever. And you know, today the email came through that uh, great to meet the team, good luck, but it's, you know, we're a pass at this time. And you have to understand that that is normal, right? Like the best possible um, uh, combination of variables in the startup community is going to give you a very low percentage chance of actually turning into money at that time. Um, but the other thing is, also today, we, we got some relatively good news. You know, there's an open thread that's still moving forward and it's, it's, a, it's a smaller figure, but it's definitely something that would help keep us alive and keep us accelerating. And, and the neat thing is that even though you pick up this huge pile of rejections, almost universally and absolutely in the case of this fund I just mentioned, um, the people say, this is fascinating. Please keep us in the loop. Please keep us on that monthly update. We want to see your progress over time. And uh, one thing I'd like to mention is that I once pitched a deep tech venture capitalist using our football size prototype. And it was even in pieces at the time. It wasn't even assembled or wet tested. <laughs> and she said, Tori, I really love your dream. This is too early for my fund, right? I can't write you a check today. Um, but I like you and I like your energy. And, and please include me on your monthly update. 36 monthly updates later, uh, she called me up and said, I'm starting my own fund. You're my first check or, or one of the early checks. And that, that feeling is amazing because as a founder, you need to very carefully um, manage your emotional reactions. There are very few people in the world that don't want to see you succeed. And if people give you an opportunity 
to share the story, they may very well become some of your biggest backers. Um, but in this case, it took three years. So I, I think there's a lesson in that. Absolutely. I, I love it. You're, <laughs> you're so persistent. I mean, <laughs> sending monthly updates for 36 months and it paid off. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it also, it, it becomes just a great story. You know, right now I have uh, people joining me from all over the world who obviously are just desperately recruiting um, software engineers, embedded firmware people. Um, you know, anyone that uh, likes to operate at the absolute limit of, of, of what's possible with ones and zeros. Um, and when I see the team stuck on something and people are depressed because, you know, yet again, the video looks terrible or the robot won't pair or on a mechanical side, it's almost, it almost feels like the battery can't even move the device. I just realized I, I have to tell the team that we are actually doing so well. Like this, this thing is so close to real. Um, it, it's hard to, it's hard to describe it. You can kind of feel the electricity in the air. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, we can create a product that for millions of patients will give them the ability to have a quick, easy look around in their belly, you know, instead of a few months of rather arduous gatekeeping and, and finally getting that powerful procedure. Let's just make it easy to have a quick look around. If we find anything scary, we'll send you in for a real endoscopy, right? But my hope is that we can do it 10 times cheaper than it might have otherwise been done, right? I want to make a technology that's 10 times safer if you add up infection risks and poking tubes around in the body. You know, I, I think that with better technology, uh, we can simply change the nature of the conversation so that it's better for everyone. And that's that's where we feel excited. Awesome. Tell me something. What have your interactions with physicians looked like so far? Sure. Well, initially in 2019, you know, it was relatively difficult for us to get gastroenterologists to basically take substantial blocks of time and 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 help us on a day-to-day -day basis, right? In order to become a gastroenterologist, I mean, you're, you're talking about taking a top performing student, sending them to medical school, you know, college, medical school, selecting one of the hardest specialties, years of residency, then you go into practice and some team with a, a pile of plastic parts approaches you, right? You, you must understand that it takes time to, to rise to the level where, where you're worthy of of that kind of a person's time. So we just slowly began the networking process. Um, I am extremely grateful for LinkedIn because it gave us a place to start sharing pictures and videos that we were shooting as we, we sort of called ourselves amateur gastroenterologists. Um, <laughs> something very beautiful happened when we made friends with the head of GI over at King's College London. Uh, Dr. Hay uh, is a is uh, the one who heads that up and he was he was the first heavy hitting gi to to truly see something in our team and uh and and he started uh, opening doors for us and that that led us to uh vivek kumbari over at mayo and um and we are extremely proud to have been able to make friends with a community of gis who many look to as leaders in the field. 
Um, since then, we've been proud to be able to uh, make the relationship with uh, Mayo Clinic um, more official with a basic know-how agreement. Uh, so we have, we have a press release out for that. Um, but the bottom line is, I feel at this time that we have very respectable GIs asking us if we can actually make a PillBot that delivers on the promise. And, and so through, through an FDA lens, I think for us that means, can we make a moving eyeball in the stomach that we can prove is safe and effective for basic visualization of the human stomach? Can we do that? If we can do that, we might have a seat at the table and I will say that just getting to that moment is, is certainly not trivial. And I hope that that's not where this technology ends. I just hope that's the beginning. Absolutely amazing. I, I love it. Uh, finding physician champions on LinkedIn. You're so crafty, man. I love you. <laughs> There's a huge value in being able to have an authentic networking hook. And so for me, uh, I need to make friends with investors and, and doctors and stakeholders in the industry. And when I see someone doing something really cool, like uh, how about Daniel Kraft with what he's doing with uh, telemedicine and telehealth? Um, he, Daniel Kraft is a ER doc, a flight surgeon, and like a leader in the, in the world of digital health. Um, he's a rock star. And um, we're, we're actually gonna go to his conference at the hotel, the Coronado Hotel down in uh, Southern California in a few months and hopefully do a demo. Um, but to make friends with someone like the great Dan Kraft, uh, you need to be able to say something. And so I would, I would go on LinkedIn and say, hey, Dan, I'm a big fan of your work. I make robot pills and I'd love to connect if you're up for it. And Dan doesn't have to accept, you know, in this case he did, I'm proud to have that connection. Um, but whether or not they accept, it's unlikely that they would be offended by that type of a connection request. I make robot pills. My goal is to create a new kind of telemedicine. Is this a connection that you'd be willing to make? Um, that, that's not offensive. You're not necessarily turning someone off permanently or damaging your own reputation. And uh, I will say that in 2019, I might have had a 1% hit rate. I, it, it's a little bit up from there, but I think I passed like 6,400 connections recently. And honestly, it's like a third doctors, a third hardcore investors, and then maybe one third founders, um, rough, roughly, right? Which that's a pretty cool cohort, right? It makes me wonder if we can make endiotics successful, what might come after that? Um, possibly good things, but it, it, it takes years to build a network. So start now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Tori, I think we're almost running out of time. So I'll give you the chance to ask me any questions, any questions for me. Seriously, right? So we get so myopic focused on building our robots. Um, we often have to have a very cold wake up call. One question for you as, as a doctor, as someone who knows this space so intimately well, even if I can give you a totally functional eyeball that can move around in the stomach for say 15 minutes um, to give you real-time visualization of the human stomach, what fraction of your actual practice would that even be relevant to? 
right? My, my fear is, what if it's just not good enough to, to start the adventure? I, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about that. I think it's going to be relevant to what you said before. It's going to be relevant to the cost and the risk. So you said you want to reduce the risk um, to 10%. You want to reduce the cost to 10%. And if that's the case, then there may be a lot of patients that I would defer scoping. Maybe I'll use that pill with, if that makes sense. So if we talk about um, dyspepsia, for example, you could test the patient with dyspepsia for H. pylori before you do an endoscopy. But maybe if we have this technology available to us and it's cheap, it's safe, why not? Maybe I can go for an endoscopy right away. Um, and so I think it is relevant. Now, the other portion in which it's relevant is going to be a lot of these cases that I, you know, I go in a lot of the time with endoscopy with a very, very, very low possibility that there's something going to be wrong, that I'm going to actually find an ulcer, for example. So I think these uh, low pretest probability uh, procedures may be a good area to start with a pill like this rather than bring the patient in and do endoscopy. Now, I'll be very honest with you um, and talk about the possibility of if this is really cheap, you may run into trouble convincing physicians to go down this route because it's going to reduce their revenue. But at the end of the day, I think everybody does what's best for the patient and, you know, better technology wins regardless. And so, um, so I do think that, that this certainly may be relevant. Now, the issues that I think would, we would encounter are going to be technical issues. So if this is not going to give us a great look at the entire stomach and the patient's going to have to move around and that kind of stuff, that may be an area of difficulty. In addition to that, um, Drinking large amounts of water is going to be something that maybe not all patients will be able to tolerate, especially when we start talking about patients with heart failure, for example, patients with chronic kidney disease, patients who have fluid restriction um, as, as part of their treatment. And then the last part is going to be the fact that in, you know, in an endoscopy, I can actually take tissue samples, but with a pill cam or a pill bot, I'm not able to do that. Now, I can foresee that this is something that can be, you know, fixed over time, <laughs> that this may be something that can take samples in the future. And I think that that would, if, if this can take tissue samples, um, I think it will very, very possibly eliminate endoscopy. I'm, I am hoping to do some form of a self-test for tissue sampling maybe later this year, right? Um, it's a question of just how much tissue do you want me to grab? I think we can probably be pretty good at targeting and acquiring a piece of tissue. Um, I'm just trying to brainstorm the best ways to get that sample out in real time and not have to you know, go collect it in the toilet, right? Um, we have a few ideas of how we can do that. Um, Bottom line is, I'm hoping that uh, to, to you and your practice and your friends and uh, to anyone who's listening, 
our goal here is to, uh, in, a, in as humble of a manner as possible, just start making friends. We would like to collaborate. Um, I would like to get on a Zoom call with you and uh, give you some keyboard commands to fly one of these around in my stomach if you're up for it. Um, but, <laughs> awesome. but I'll be honest, right now, the every component of our system is real. We have a radio link and we, we have live video and we have some motion, we have some battery life. But with that being said, every part of it is still under development, not yet good enough to uh, to go treat a patient with. So we're, we're just working hard and, and, and glad to be here at the table. And honestly, man, I, I, you know, talking to you, I, I have no doubts that, uh, that you're going to make it. Well, awesome. Well, uh, let's just keep the conversation going, right? I, I think this is a fun moment in time uh, for health technology. Um, and it's, it's, uh, there, there are some beautiful metaphors when you realize that the engineers and the doctors and even the people from the world of finance that come together to make this kind of thing possible. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Tori. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having this conversation, really awesome conversation. And if I can have you on the line for five minutes after we're done, though. That concludes this episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and please leave a review as it helps us create additional content. See you again next time.